Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we will be discussing Andrei Zvigantsev's acclaimed drama Loveless. I'm Sam Howlett and joining me this week are Irena Musumeci. Hello. And Stephen Ryder. Hello. So uh, Irena, what have you been up to? Um, I've got into some really weird phase of my life in which it is very important to me to watch and read things that are seasonally accurate. So I've been watching a whole load of like wintry films and Loveless seems particularly Mm. perfect for that sort of thing. Uh, But I caught up with um, a rewatch of Inside Lewin Davis which is like to me the perfect January film. Yeah, because, it's a oh god, yeah, and its <laughs> its mood is it's not just cold, but it's the kind of cold that really aggravates you yeah. and just doesn't seem to end. And an endless series of you know bad luck and misadventures. Famously, Oscar Isaac sang and uh, played guitar for his audition in the film, and um, he does sing and play guitar in the film. Music's very important. It's the story of this. Uh, semi-failed uh, folk musician in New York, uh, late 1950s, early 60s. At mm-hmm. the very end of the film, and this is no spoiler, Bob Dylan comes on stage to <laughs> sing, and Lewin Davis, who is this kind of um, good but not great folk singer who has the wrong attitude to really try and make it, sort of has this moment of recognition that he is not the big thing, but there is a guy who is coming. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's such a marvellous film. I love this kind of, the, the films that tackle this difficult subject of mediocrity mm. in a kind of way that takes it very seriously. What is that experience like when you know that you have talent, but you're never going to be great and you don't learn from your mistakes? It's mm. just one of those beautiful kind yeah. of circular films where yeah. he just does not improve they, they, or yeah. anything. There's no learning and he's kind of stuck in this january great cat performance as well yeah oh my god that cat yeah. those cats yeah multiple yes. ginger cats steven what have you been up to? all right i'm 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 actually going to talk about the cloverfield paradox <laughs> because i think it's fascinating how this thing was released of yeah. course like it, it's been in the pipeline for a while and uh during the super bowl they they showed an ad for it and said coming very soon and it turned out that very soon was literally just after the Super Bowl had ended. So Netflix have done this uh, as as a sort of experiment, I suppose. Personally, I'm I'm, I'm semi-invested in the Cloverfield kind of universe. I think that the first film was was great. I mean, Monsters Smashing Up Cities is like one of my favorite subgenres of films. Just oh, like inside loved Loveless, then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Rampage this uh, oh, really? next year. Yeah, oh, I mean, it, it's three monsters, Smashing yeah. Up Cities. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that should be fun. But but Cloverfield was great. I really liked it. 10 Cloverfield Lane, I thought, had a lot going for it. Unfortunately, the Cloverfield paradox is not good. Oh, you do surprise me. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not surprising because they've been quite open about the fact that they took a script that had nothing to do with the Cloverfield universe and kind of made it fit. It feels a little bit like trying to get square pegs into round holes because okay. there's, it's it's not a great script. It's not a good story. And although the ending of the Cloverfield Paradox does kind of bring it all back together full circle with uh, the other films, it's it's not worth it. And there's yeah. another one coming out soon as well. O- Overlord? Overlord, that's yeah. right. They're, they must be changing to Cloverlord, right? They've got to, <laughs> they've got to do that. But, it's a uh, shame though, that like, Netflix has this kind of... Um, you know, like you just said, you sort of expect something to be cheap just because it's on Netflix. Because I have really yeah. high expectations about Annihilation, mm, which yeah. is going to come out soon. And the books are fantastic and really, uh, you know, when they say this is too intellectual to go into cinemas. Well, I don't believe that for a second, but the books are really complex and mm-hmm. sophisticated. And yeah. 
I can see that it's not an easy release, but I think also it's quite brave of Netflix to embrace a product like that yeah. and try and see what what they're going to make of it. Obviously, they've only made the first film. Yeah. Uh, what is it that they plan on it being a series? I I should think so, because huh. really, I don't know which way they went, but the first book kind of sets up a whole load of stuff which you don't really resolve until possibly the last page of the third book mm. if at all mm. so uh, it, it's um it won't have a kind of neat uh conclusive yeah uh, ending to it uh i have been finally watching the west wing oh hooray. i've made it onto season two was it the post that inspired you it was the post and it was get out because of uh bradley whitford oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and also i saw i Tonya a few nights ago yeah. and Alison uh, Alison janney because it was made in the time when every season has like 22 episodes Whereas now the max is like 13. How many seasons of the West Wing have? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven seasons of 22 episodes. Yeah. Wow. So I've got so a long, like 14 seasons ahead. today. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. But you, you guys have both seen them all, right? Uh, yeah. I've, I've not seen all of the West Wing. Okay. No, no, no. I've, I've seen bits and bits and bobs. I've seen it all twice. Okay. Wow. Because twice. I loved it so much. Yeah. yeah. But I was around the first time when it was on TV. Uh, so I did watch it and I had to wait yeah. for each episode and then wait for each mm. season and you couldn't do the binging things. And then the second time round, I, I binged. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I think it's wonderfully written. The characters really stay with you in ways that are just unimaginable. Yeah. You know, it's just brilliant. To me, like CJ is a real person. In fact, my new phone, which is sitting right here with me, <laughs> is called CJ. And my <laughs> laptop... It's called Toby Ziegler. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> okay, so on with the show then. Uh, so Loveless stars Mariana Spivak and Alexi Rosen as Genia and Boris, a couple in the midst of a bitter divorce who must deal with the disappearance of their young son Alexi in 2012 Moscow. The film won the jury prize at last year's Cannes, Best Film at the London Film Festival, various European Film Awards. It's nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at both the BAFTAs and the Oscars. It's a film that I know a lot of people have already seen and really seem to love. Uh, and a few have even told me that it's their favourite film of the year so far. I mean, it's only February. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I thought it was incredible. I, I mean, I've heard I've heard his films before described as being kind of formidable is a word that comes up a lot. Like, grand, they're grand films. Mm. They, they, they have, a you know, they have a lot to say and they've got this really kind of big feeling about them. And this is no different, to be honest, even though it's such a personal story about a a couple's relationship kind of i mean we join it when it's already fallen apart yeah um and it's 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 horrible to watch like no it's it's that kind of watching watching a relationship fall apart is one thing but watching the aftermath when these people really kind of despise each other yeah uh, and just want to be away from each other but they can't is uh very difficult to watch but kind of you you, you find yourself glued to the screen the whole way through it yeah. and and that's really only the beginning this mm. kind of relationship and you, we meet them at the point where it's become really bitter they just recriminate each other and they're just at each other's throats and in the middle of it all is a child uh, who about halfway through the film goes missing and yeah. I kind of expected him to go missing at the beginning of Me the too. film but yeah. having to mm. watch this pain that he's been put through and the you know the, the flat has been sold his home has just been destroyed in all possible yeah. ways and watch his kids suffer um, when he disappears his absence becomes even more intolerable oh, than the yeah. pain you've been through absolutely. at this point absolutely. I mean it, it is horrible to watch and yet it's an incredible film to experience because yeah. I just found myself um, being completely pinned down to my seat mm -hmm. I couldn't breathe mm -hmm. almost it was a physical um, experience there's a there's a lot going on 
at all times in the frame and Zvergensev often uses this device of a kind of zooming camera mm. so you're you're watching something initially with a kind of quite clinical separate place from a separate place and then you're getting closer and closer and closer to it very 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 slowly yeah. and somehow that experience is so absorbing and the the level of tension that I experienced watching this film it was like watching you know a crazy slasher yeah. movie where anybody <laughs> could be assassinated at any point in brutal ways and they were doing so with words that that acerbic script especially the performance from uh, Mariana Spivak she is unbelievable in this yeah. film like she she's 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 quite hateable she's quite a nasty mm. person but you get the feeling she's not always been that way mm. um, but she gives she delivers a performance like you were saying just of a pure kind of bile and hatred and 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 especially in the scene uh in the car uh where where he turns up the uh, the metal music yeah. and the camera just stays on her as she's listening to this metal and her face just doesn't change and you see how kind of cold and empty she's become because of this the breakdown of this relationship and uh yeah it's really really hits yeah. you hard you know yeah, look, he he wants to radio up and she wants to smoke and they kind of sort of battle each other mm. yeah mm. and what's great is that yeah the, the camera i think it's from the back isn't it just stays on her face yeah, I've noticed throughout the film that there there aren't loads of edits. There's not loads of cuts. The camera often it zooms a lot, but it often stays on one shot for a while, mm. and that makes you feel even almost even more uncomfortable and even mm. more sort of intrusive and like you're yeah you're being pinned down as you say, or being forced to watch these people's very uncomfortable lives. Mm. There's a there's a really very theatrical quality to Zvergintsev's mm. directing. He um, trained as an actor, and uh, in in Russian theatre, actors train in a very very um, specific very detailed way many of them still work with the Stanislavski method which has obviously now been yeah. updated and modernized but really the core of the Russian style comes from that school and um, I think the way he uses the static camera when the camera is not moving is incredibly theatrical there's mm. always a frame which looks a little bit like a proscenium march in a theater yeah. and he moves characters within it there's an elegance to it isn't Absolutely. there yeah, yeah, yeah. like and, a stagey uh, elegance to and, it. and the way you know kind of people move in and out of the frame and you you sort of want to follow them but the camera stays on a detail or stays on mm. something there's an incredible scene um towards the kind of uh, about three quarters of the way in when uh the um, search party the coordinator of the search party which has formed to try and find uh the child alyosha who's gone missing um they interview a friend uh in the school who mm. is you know this 12 yeah. year old boy and uh the interview happens in class and the boy's father is there and a lot of people are watching this kid including his teachers and the scene kind of takes place and during the course of the scene the boy reveals that the kids had a secret hiding place and uh the uh, the search party then goes off to find it but the camera stays with the school uh, with the classroom and the teacher is there and she wipes the, the yeah, blackboard yeah. and that i don't know just the scene of watching an actor do this mm -hmm. and what is she trying to say about you know the 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 secret hiding places the things that you can see and not see once yeah. you wipe something off them and then the cat she moves out of sight but the camera stays on the window and outside it starts to snow, so any clues that you could possibly find will not be found because yeah. the snow is going to cover everything. Mm -hmm. And just the symbolism of those two things going on, which is only generated by the fact that they're both in the frame and that the actors are moving in and out of them, is absolutely extraordinary. I thought it was really just mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. Whilst all this is going on, whilst we're, we're, go we're watching these characters interact, whilst we're watching this search party search, I think he's built up an environment in the film that's just he makes you feel the cold and he mm. makes you feel 
the the trepidation that everybody has about just going outside yeah um and i think that that is that adds to the tension because you know this this kid well you hope that this kid is out there somewhere you know the the fact that the outside just seems like this brutal like unforgiving kind of place with these kind of fractals of tree branches going everywhere and like this pure white and there's a desolation to it Mm. and uh, you never know when that snow is going to start coming down again it really makes you kind of tighten up inside and it's something that i've seen in his previous films as well is that he makes you really kind of viscerally feel the environment around the characters definitely and it, it does go hand in hand however with a sense that the home and the house is not a safe place it's not a place mm. that's cozy and warm um at one point the search party coordinator says oh you know kids go missing all the time but then they they are comfortable at home so they come back but obviously we've seen this child yeah. be incredibly uncomfortable mm-hmm. in his home and literally his home is being torn apart uh, there are people going to view the yeah. apartment, uh, thinking about how they are going to live there because he isn't going to live there anymore. And it's very unclear what's going to happen to him and where is he going to go? Where is his home? Yeah. So the, the house, and there are various um, apartments and houses and yeah. households in the film, and none of them feel like happy, uh, sort of cozy places yeah. that protect you from the outside world. Mm. Um, well, look at the look at the hiding place he goes to yeah it's yeah. an abandoned yeah. high-rise yeah. yeah and the grandma's house is uh like it's walled off with these big rusty metal sh- um mm-hmm. sort of sheeting things mm-hmm. that they have to climb over to get into and yeah. the house is it looks it's like not nice yeah it's like so messy and yeah. they need a torch to look in there yeah. And, yeah. and then and then even at the end when they're going through the uh the high-rise buildings they yeah. they just start to look more and more alien yeah. like nowhere starts to feel like home nowhere yeah. starts to feel safe um you get these incredible shots i thought of these lit kind of high-rise yeah. buildings with yeah. the snow kind of drifting down and there's that long take of uh somebody going into a door and it stays on the building and then they come out the door at the bottom yeah and you yeah. just kind of realize how fruitless and, and like, sort of orange light yes. yeah well, it's like, incredible. Like two right there's one yeah. one's got these like yeah. blue and the other one's got orange and they're kind of like parallel to each other and like mm. you say you just see this little figure like go in and then come out yeah an incredible it shot looks so alienating yeah. it just doesn't look like a there's, home at all no and there's the satellite dish as well am i remembering that yeah. right yeah. Like, yeah yeah huge satellite dish that kind of comes out of nowhere that you just kind of want to get away from <laughs> it just feels so foreboding <laughs> yeah. the the high-rises appear um from the very beginning almost so there's there's a kind of sequence at the beginning where you're with a lot of trees and yeah. nature and it feels almost like this is going to be some bucolic interesting mm. it's sunny as well at the beginning of the film it's autumn so the light is a bit warmer and then you get this kind of wide shot of these high rises in the background uh and uh, just the juxtaposition of the the tree the bear trees with these high rises creates a sort of tension between the outside and the inside Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. continually Mm -hmm. um what's also quite interesting is um obviously the high rises are such a symbol of a country that has had a system uh for for decades uh, of socialism where the high-rises symbolized mm. a kind of egalitarian living and uh, anyone who had a child a couple who had a child were entitled to get their own flat and uh, I know from personal experience with my family in East Germany mm-hmm. that um, many people you know as soon as they turned 18 they started to try and have children so they could move out of the mm. parents house because you couldn't go out and find your own flat so there's there's a real connection there between the situation of these people who have decided to stay together and have this kid and they talk quite openly about the fact that neither of them really wanted him yeah. but somehow it meant getting something and of course the the 
the birth date of the child uh, comes way after uh, you know the dismantling of socialism, but at the same time, it is interconnected with Rus- Russian history in quite significant ways, which we can probably go into. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, this this mirrors the uh, the problems that the father has as well. With um, sorry, Boris has with uh, his work. Like he's he thinks his marriage is something he needs to stay in because if his boss finds out, he's gonna get fired. Um, yeah. it becomes a practical thing like a relationship that should be kind of a it should possibly like a spiritual kind of connection you have with somebody becomes a practical practicality yeah. you know, and, and that's because there's a there's an inherent hypocrisy at the center of the ruling class mm. uh, so the boss is a, a Russian Orthodox fundamentalist beardy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, beardy, <laughs> uh, of a type that would have come to the fore again after the collapse of communism and particularly under Putin um, so there's a there are there are quite a few ways in which Zyaginsev criticizes the contemporary uh, Russian culture, particularly the kind of middle class aspiration mm. that both um, characters, both Zhenya uh, and Boris, have. Mm. And with Boris, it's very much about I want to keep my job, I want to be respectable, I don't really care about the morality of it. I just, you know, this is it. And he has a conversation with his colleague in yeah. the canteen yes. who also yeah. says, Oh, you know, there's a couple of guys that are just kind of married to these women, but they're not really married, but they need to pretend yeah. that they're married. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you do it. Yeah. And at the same time, there's sort of a conversation that, um, Genia has at her place of work, which is a beauty salon, yeah. uh, with a beautician uh, who has given her what looks like a very painful waxing session. <laughs> um, and uh, they talk about how, you know, in the end, your husband's lucky that he only has to go to these uh, monasteries and religious mm-hmm. uh, communities for a weekend or something because uh, the beautician's partner's boss is a sports enthusiast and so everyone yeah. has to go skiing and doing this like <laughs> reckless winter sports with yeah. him and he forces everyone to do it so if it's not like a religious uh, element to it there's certainly a, a way in which the ruling class are just doing whatever they want and they impose their will on their employees and everyone has to count out to them or they lose their jobs mm-hmm. um so she talks about how you can get a doctor friend to make you a fake medical certificate to say that you can't ski and then you don't have to go on these dangerous things <laughs> yeah, it's just problems upon problems upon problems that this hypocrisy is causing for yeah. them. Like they're just yeah. yeah building up. I found that um, so that the first hour or so is very kind of dialogue heavy and very action heavy. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of a lot of that kind of dialogue that you were just talking about in the workplace. And then there's a lot of like, the screaming and shouting with each other. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, um, sex scenes mm-hmm. with both mm-hmm. the couples. But then once the sort of search for Alexi intensifies, it gets a lot quieter. Like the the space gets a lot emptier of people, and you see people. It's the search party from afar rather than close up, yeah. and it's it's the 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 shot with the high rise we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's these empty spaces and these empty buildings. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting sort of stylistic change I found. Mm. It's mm. A, to me, it's a film that starts Bergman and ends Tarkovsky. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a really that division, yeah. you know. And yeah. he he has spoken very explicitly about how he wanted this to be a kind of uh, response to Bergman's um, scene from mm. a marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is about uh, a couple's, you know, brutal, terrible, existential... Yeah, um, I mean, it's existential... six hours long as well, so yeah, yeah it's not an easy watch. <laughs> and but... and it's done through interviews yeah. with them, and at the beginning, they kind of, they've been together 10 years, and they're happy, and then things just kind of go mm. from bad to worse. Oh, I, ha- I hadn't heard him say that. That's really interesting. Actually. It started off as, yeah, like almost a remake, didn't it? At one yeah. point, it was a kind of up- updated version of it. Huh. In Russia. That yeah. was his original idea. I've, I've always felt like um, Svagnitsev is 
more Bergman than he is Tarkovsky. Like from the films that I've seen by him, I keep seeing him referred to as the new Tarkovsky. The new Tarkovsky. Yeah. Um, but I'm not. I, I don't see it as much as other people seem to mm. see it. You know. But this, the end of Loveless. You're right. Is certainly the most Tarkovsky he's he's yeah. gotten. I still think that that Tarkovsky's films dealt with this kind of like impenetrable kind of soul of Russia, whereas I think that um, Zagnitsev is going for more of a kind of. Um, I feel like I feel like this film's kind of hopeful in the end. I don't know about other people, but I, yeah, <laughs> I don't see it as a fully pessimistic film, especially after the search party comes in. And I feel like you've got something to cling on to there, whereas I don't think Tarkovsky ever really gave us that. He left it oh. very open ended. But I, I felt I feel like um, the search party show a side of Russia that is still willing to help mm. and a side that is still willing to be there for people. Yeah. You know, I think it's important that it's not the police that are yeah. looking. Signitsev, yeah. he said, modern day police don't care about people. And I think it's a very conscious decision to have it be a search, the volunteer search party that are yes. doing all the they're actions. they're volunteers, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're people who, who are there for no other reason than to help find this child. Uh, they're not getting paid for it. They're not yeah. there to prove themselves to anybody. We see them as a kind of mass of helpful people rather than as characters. Um, and I, I just, I, I got a lot from that. I thought it was very moving, actually, how they really put themselves yeah. out mm. there to, to help um and you know i think the fact that even when you know all the hope is starting to fade away you're still getting shots of these stairwells with uh, alexi's face just plastered all along them there's mm. he's not quite been forgotten yet you know and i think yeah. that was kind of a hopeful thing it's very much about a country that is as a nation stuck somewhere in a cycle that is just mm. devastating and it's killing its own children and it's killing its own future so the child that's another real Tarkovsky motif is all over Ivan's childhood for instance uh, the child as the, as the locus of hope and uh, innocence really you know the child is represents everything that you know the parents have have got to up until this point they create this child and where is the child gonna go and this child simply goes missing and there is no reason there is no explanation there's a true mystery at the core of this and it seems to me that that innocence is forever lost and that's where that sort of Tarkovskian um, sense of allegory of individuals stuck within a system and needing to find their own space in it uh, is very overwhelming. I was really, uh, to me, it, it is his most Tarkovskian film. Mm. There's also, as we were talking about, these uh, abandoned blasted buildings mm. uh, where they go to try and find the kids in their hiding place. They are 100% stalker, aren't they? They do feel <laughs> very like stalker. That's that's flooded. why the last portion of the film, especially, yeah. especially like aesthetically, is, yeah. is certainly like yeah. really Tarkovsky-esque. And yeah. there's, a, there's a really nice, uh, very explicit uh, film quotation of Tarkovsky when towards the end, the camera looks at a scene outside the window of children playing in the snow, yeah. which to me is a scene that completely uh, quotes the Bruegel painting that, is, that appears in Solaris. And it's the hunters right. in the snow, yeah. and the hunters in the snow are in the foreground, but in the background of the of the painting are all these children who are skating. They're mm. playing on the lake, and it's kind of beautiful, you know, traditional Flemish winter scene from the <laughs> past, and the kind of you know iconic imagery of that. But then we are looking on, you know, this hill in the park where kids are playing, but we know that one kid is is not, not there. there. Yeah. I mean, I would ask you to like, why do you think that they? 
they had a search party why do you think that these people looked for because that that search goes on for a long time yeah it feels like a long time it feels like they're not giving up well i guess it felt like a natural step in terms of you know what do you do Mm. when you're confronted with a situation your child goes missing they don't even realize for a good two days two days yeah Mm. which is unbelievable i just i can't imagine how yeah a a family would do that but clearly they're so they're presented as very self-centered and being confronted with this completely selfless community that comes and helps them yeah i think it is significant as a kind of juxtaposition so i do see Mm. a certain level of there are still people out there Mm. who are willing to to fight or to believe in something and there's a generic goodness in them but at the same time it it bears no fruit Mm. they cannot find this child yeah and and to me what happens next you know the search party is is hopeful and you you try to really stick with it and you really pray that something's going to happen and then there's that scene at the morgue which is also yeah that's the scene where you think maybe they have learned something or changed slightly but then from the final moments you think maybe oh no maybe they haven't Mm. at the morgue they are presented with this off-camera corpse Mm -hmm. which is laid out in front of boris and jenia and they are called in to see if they can identify the body we never see the body which is a relief it's a horrible horrible scene yeah yeah it really is and 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 i think a really important scene as well because as much as these characters are so unlikable when they break down when uh she breaks down you're not sitting there thinking like well you deserved it no you're not you're sitting there thinking this is horrible for a mother to experience like even though she's been she's not been a good mother Mm. she's been a terrible mother in fact you don't this is something that you don't want to see um and i think that it's that's that's the director's way of telling us kind of like if we keep like perpetuating this cycle of like this is what you deserve then nobody's gonna get anywhere yeah yeah there's something very complex as well going on in that scene which is where i questioned whether the film is misogynistic in its representation of of women Mm. and this is quite complicated but essentially i think there's a the film treats the the father and mother very differently Mm. um i found myself being much more sympathetic to boris as a Mm. character than to genia and i think it's because there's some kind of inherent uh societal uh understanding of what motherhood should be yeah but it was at that point that suddenly i felt that everything that she was saying about not wanting this child and treating him so badly <clears throat> was really such a um almost like a shield because she was uh, in fact suffering immense grief in this relationship and clearly could not relate to her child in various different yeah. ways which made me much more sympathetic to her and it was because in that scene she really does break down mm. and yeah. i think there it's is just such a complex mix of of feelings of guilt and just utter despair mm. and the way she's also then refusing to do the dna test that they're offering yeah. because is it in fact more painful to know that the child you didn't love has died mm. and is gone forever and it's your fault or yeah. and, and it, it's your fault mm. uh, or is it better to kind of hang on to it and at that point my sympathy is flipped okay um and i was i was with her a lot more than with him and he just also kind of breaks down and eventually that is the moment when they both have an emotional reaction that is not yeah. anger and it's the only time yeah. in the film so it's um it's such a crucial scene as much as they are very unlikable people they're still human and i think mm. he wants to show us that there is still humanity left in them mm. despite yeah. everything we've seen every vile acidic thing they've shouted at each other they are still very real people mm. Mm. 
No, I certainly felt that way. Like I, I think the film sets you up to 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 hate these people, yeah, and then really slowly and cleverly makes it so you you end up sympathising with them. And it's just such such an important crux to the film because if these were just caricatures of bad parents, yes, yeah. that you wouldn't feel anything by the end of the film. Uh, you'd be. The, the, and the time, in fact, you, I know you said earlier about the Alyosha, but his performance is so key mm. to the film because when the time, the small, I think he gets given quite a small amount of screen time to to make an impact, but he does, and especially yeah. the scene with him crying in the bedroom. Yeah, silence, it's horrible. Oh he absolutely nails it. He's got this expressive, incredible face. What did you think about the um, uh, sort of continuous? Uh, representation of people on phones and being constantly like taking yeah, selfies like and obsessed look, looking kind through of... things on their phone and yeah, yeah there's like she, t- she takes a photo of her dinner doesn't she a couple yeah. of times yeah mm-hmm. and there's the group of girls as well I think, yeah in the restaurant yeah, that the camera stays on, them on for, for quite a while yeah it's, yeah. it's a that, good minute or so the it? really bizarre uh off-screen voice with a point of view shot where a voice of a, the voice of a man asks this that, pretty I mean, woman yeah. her number and are we meant to believe that she's some sort of call girl or some sort of like weird Russian. I don't remember this bit. Really. Yeah, it's really strange. They're going to a restaurant. Yeah. So uh, Anton and Genia um, uh, have a date in this uh-huh. fancy restaurant, and we are taken into the restaurant by this floating camera. Yeah, the gliding camera work. Yeah. I remember. And that, there is a yeah. voice of a man off camera who asks this beautiful girl for her number, and mm-hmm. she gives him the number directly to us very, to the to yeah, the camera. Mm. Very flirty, and then she goes and sits down with this guy, I and then there's a group recall, of yeah. girls yeah. who are all taking selfies together, and is it? a birthday party is it some kind of professional call girls getting together for a drink yeah. or something and they they toast to yeah. is it to happiness and selfies <laughs> yeah. yeah it is yeah. Happiness, happiness and selfies, and selfies. Um, yeah cuz that seems to me again to be part of this kind of big ponderous um takedown of contemporary russian culture yeah. and this reliance on uh, you know aspiration that is completely empty and it does connect with a sense of the past, you know, socialism has been dismantled and now we've been taken over by yeah. this horrible individualistic uh, capitalist culture, yeah. uh, which is so intrinsic to the, the Putin um, regime, really. I, uh, and um, yeah, it, it's um, I, I, I was asking myself, is this a bit too cheap or easy a way to show <laughs> that women are a bit shallow? Yeah, no, and I, people I, are yeah shallow. I, I was wondering, is it, is it as simple as that? <laughs> Yeah, is it a simple? It's a bit of a it's a bit of a blow to the head, isn't it? Yeah, stuff like that. It, I mean, it goes, it, it completely disappears in the second half of the film. Though, yeah, it, it yeah. does. Although at the end, Jenna is on her phone, back again, yeah. back mm-hmm. again as Anton is watching the news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to the news and what he's watching. Yeah, do you want to expand more on maybe the um the allegorical aspect well, of the film because it's kind I, of a film on two levels, isn't it? I am yeah, very far from a, an expert in the very complex history yes. of the Soviet Union and its uh its various uh multiple breakdowns um but it seemed to me so significant that the film ends on the war in the ukraine in 2013 which was uh, you know a situation which sort of the um uh, it's connected with what happened in the in crimea crimea is a majority Mm -hmm. uh, russian ethnic population and they held uh uh, basically illegal referendum in which they uh, opted to secede from the Ukraine and join Russia. Right. Uh, the referendum was one of these highly contested uh, things in which Russia may or may not have had an involvement. Um, and essentially, at that point, uh, Putin invaded Crimea and kind of claimed it as part of the Russian Federation. Right. And the government in the Ukraine collapsed into civil war also because 
at the same time, uh, I think around 20, 2012, 2013, um, there was the, all the events that happened uh, when there was a, an election in the Ukraine and the government of the Ukraine was taken over by people who wanted to ally themselves with Russia rather than okay. the EU. Mm -hmm. And so there were protests, which you may remember, Maidan, uh, Maidan uh, Square, uh, and kind of continued for, for various years. And the news that the they are watching on TV at the end are very much kind of propagandistic. They are showing yes. a civil war in the Ukraine where it is required that Russia intervenes uh, to put an end to it. And so uh, it sort of made me think back to, um, because what happens is we go from the news to the image of the poster, the missing person poster, mm, yeah. which has Alyosha's birth date on it. And Alyosha was born in 2000, mm -hmm. which is the year Putin became president. Uh. Uh, so it, it just uh, I I I made that connection. I can't really <laughs> expand much more on it because, like I said, I don't really know yeah. that much more. But there seems to be some really, you know, ponderous way in which this child does represent yeah, uh, Putin's Russia, some lost years, or you know, a, an innocence that was gone because mm. of what happened mm. all around it. It is like you know. A snowball with shards of glass inside it. I think is how yeah. I describe it. Yeah. <laughs> Watching this kind of thing, and yeah. it's got all this extra uh, layer, which uh, I wish we could have had uh, Andrei Tsvigintsev here yeah. to tell us about it. But obviously, his um, his political um, allegiances and journeys have been heavily documented. Yeah. The yes. Russian government originally supported his previous film Leviathan, which is about corruption and <laughs> corruption in the Russian state. Mm -hmm. Possibly they didn't yeah. quite have a look at the script. Uh, then Leviathan was nominated for a bunch of awards and then people suddenly did see it and they they removed all of their support. And I think Loveless was made very much outside oh, of the I think the it was Russian exclusively system. at um, foreign uh, like financing. It was. Yeah. I heard the Russian government talk about nothing it. To yeah. Do with it. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah he, he definitely said that they he was very careful to say they've got no problem working with the Russian government again, but this yeah. film in particular, they wanted to kind of finance in a different way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he he's a very, I think he is a very political filmmaker, but I think he's also very carefully political. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think he's he's inviting you to, to make the connections that you've just made. Yeah. And you don't put a news bulletin about the Ukraine war in by accident, no. and you don't set a film that's made in 2017 in 2012 for any other reason than yeah. for you to make these connections mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he doesn't he's not hitting you over the head with do you remember that killing them softly the brad pitt film yes, yes which yeah. is like screaming yeah. political allegory at you throughout <laughs> the whole thing yeah yeah I, this is what you did you said it was a film of like it can be seen in two different ways yeah and uh, same goes for leviathan as well i think yeah. these are these are two films that can be seen as incredibly personal uh familial kind of tales yeah. Um, which allow you to to get into these characters' heads and don't uh, don't force the allegory on you, like you said. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to, um, you can totally see this as an alleg allegorical thing. And and I think that's what the best filmmakers do. And I think yeah. that's why he's getting so much attention is because he's not uh, forcing you to see his film in any particular way. Yeah. Uh, and that's maybe why he's managing to make these films without the Russian government completely yeah. shutting them down too. I think the you know the plot and the characters on the surface are so good that you don't have to overly rely on the political nature of the film mm -hmm. yeah. but at the same time it does help 
yeah. bring these things to the front as well. It, 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 it makes you want to see the film again. Yeah. Which I certainly do. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, that's, that's you know, the biggest compliment I think you can give any filmmaker is that after you finish watching it, you want to go back and see it again, for, especially for a film this bleak as well. Yeah. Um, to want to go back and see it for a second time, I think, is a huge compliment to the yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. Excellent. So that is Loveless, which is out this week on Friday, the 9th of February. But if you want to avoid the cold February weather, uh, you can stay in and watch Loving Vincent. It's out in Curzonheim Cinema on the 12th of February. So this is the first ever painted film. Each shot was hand-painted, um, and it is a kind of biopic of uh, Vincent van Gogh. Uh, and it's a totally new way of making an animated film. So do check that out. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As ever, if you enjoy the show, you can rate us on iTunes and you can catch us every week on iTunes and on SoundCloud. So it's goodbye from Stephen. Bye-bye. Bye from Ren. Bye. Thank you very much for listening.